Welcome to our discussion segment on Bartolome de las Casas. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. And today we have a special guest with us who I'll let introduce himself. Hello, I'm Father Dominic Werner, uh, Dominican friar, and uh, so I'm very happy to be uh, invited to participate in this discussion. I'm currently a PhD student at University of Notre Dame studying moral theology and certainly have an interest in uh, the legacy of Bartolome de las Casas and some of the you know controversies of his day and the legacy of those controversies and how they apply to questions today. All right, and we are very happy to have you here. Glad you were able to make the trip down from South Bend. All right, this is a really tough episode to write because there's a sense of almost unfulfilled destiny with Bartolome de las Casas, and I hope that kind of came through in the episode for those of you who listened to it, which I hope is all of you. All right, I'm going to turn it over to Joe for some opening remarks he might have, and, uh, and then we'll just get rolling. All right. I think the first question I have is, can, can you give our audience an overview of this time period that he was in? What were the factors that were pushing against him in his quest? And why was the pursuit of this type of slavery so prominent? Yeah, it's a great question. And I should preface all my comments by saying I'm not a historian of the period, you know, so I come to it really as a layman in that regard. But I would say I know a little bit about the time period at least from a theological perspective, the University of Salamanca at the time was really, in some ways, kind of the flagship university, especially in the Spanish Empire, the Spanish world. And it was a place really of theological renewal and, in some ways, humanistic renewal. It was really the center of a kind of fascinating inner period of Renaissance humanism combined with Catholic theology you know, this is right after the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And so there's a a kind of, you know, groundswell of interest, both in return to the scripture and also into the riches of the, you know, pre-Christian world in certain respects. And so this was all kind of a very fruitful period in the university setting. And it was a time when the Dominican's presence was very important at Salamanca. And from the beginning of this discovery of the so-called New World, Dominicans were very much involved. So you had one of the friars who was instrumental in Columbus receiving the patronage for his, his first voyage was uh, Diego de Deza, who was the first chair of theology at Salamanca, who petitioned the crown to sponsor the first voyage arguing from the text of St. Albert the Great and St. Thomas Aquinas that there was a good reason to believe the earth was round, that this was a, you know, a feasible kind of voyage. And Columbus himself actually recalled that Deza was the reason why their highnesses came to possess the Indies. So he actually attributed this to this friar. So fascinating from the beginning. And from the beginning, the order of preachers, the Dominican order, was intent on preaching the gospel to the whole world, to the ends of the earth. And so that was certainly the Dominican interest in these voyages of exploration. And it was a mission that was very much tied to the theological discussions of the day in Salamanca. So it was a really interesting network of scholars in Salamanca who had formed many of these missionaries in their theological formation. So there was this really interesting, fruitful exchange of the practical realities, the lived missionary experience on the ground, and then theological reflection back in Salamanca upon this. And this is all kind of in the background. This is relevant to the kind of debates that were being held, the kind of theological discussion about the injustice being done to the Indians. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, that's a little bit of the context for you. And then with respect to the slavery issue, this was mentioned in the podcast episode, that when the friars first arrived in Hispaniola, they were really appalled at what they saw. They arrived 
1510. And so not with the first wave. Not with the first wave. Exactly. So they arrived after a lot of the settlement, Mm -hmm. you know, had occurred. And this was, you know, when they arrived, these were these were friars who were part of the reform of the order. These were friars that lived a very austere life, very um, strict fasting, strict poverty. They were real men trying to live the perfection of the gospel and to live that life of charity. And so, when you know, they were appalled at what they saw. And, you know, they had come with the hope of bringing the gospel to these people, and they saw them being treated so unjustly. And so the, the really, you know, in many ways, saintly superior of this community, this small community, Pedro de Cordoba, he called the friars together in a community meeting to discuss what they were going to do, what was going to be their response. And so they, they picked their best preacher, Antonio de Monasinos. And Antonio de Monasinos was charged to preach the gospel on the fourth Sunday of Advent, 1511. And this, I believe you mentioned the podcast, right? Yep. And he called out, and Bartolome de las Casas recounts this sermon. He, he himself, being in the congregation, recounted that the sermon began, Tell me by what right of justice do you hold these Indians in such a cruel and horrible servitude? On what authority have you waged such detestable wars against these people who dealt quietly and peacefully on their own lands? Wars in which you have destroyed such an infinite number of them by homicides and slaughters never heard of before. Why do you keep them so oppressed and exhausted? And this really gets to the heart of the question of the justice of the kind of claims that the Spaniards were making. Because at the time, it was more or less universally accepted that in a just war, those who were on the the side of injustice, those who didn't have a just title to wage the war, could, after the war or in the course of the war, be justly punished with servitude. And so a lot of the questions regarding the enslavement, the the servitude of the Indians, had to do with whether there was a just cause for the Spanish War. And so you see this in the theological debates that are ongoing. Is this a just war? And of course, Las Casas, Pedro de Cordoba, Antonio de Monacinos, they all say no. And there's absolutely no just cause here. And so any kind of imposed servitude is totally unjust. And this is relevant to, I think, um, Las Casas's infamous, you know, initial proposal to replace the indigenous slaves with African slaves. Yeah. You know, he, he later recants that position mm-hmm. because he comes to see that, you know, at, at the time, again, it was like, well, were those slaves obtained through just war? Right. And yeah. he, and that was in a question that he had not explored and then mm-hmm. comes to explore and and. Eventually, of course, the whole institution of penal slavery itself in that way is vigorously fought against. Is there, just to provide a little more historical context to what Joe was was saying, I'm glad you made the point that the friars came in the second or third wave of colonization because it is important to understand that slavery was already instituted by the time they got there. It wasn't authorized by them. To my knowledge, and you can answer this certainly better than I can, The Catholic Church, at least since after the medieval period, never condoned slavery and was one of the staunch opponents of it. Is that correct? Certainly, there was a prohibition from the earliest times that Christians were not to enslave other Christians. Okay. There was still an unresolved question, again, about what do you do in a just war Mm -hmm. to penalize and to recoup the cost of that war? And this is why, so there was debates as to this, you know, could you impose fines and levies on the people that you conquered or Mm -hmm. that you defended yourself against, right? Or do you have a just title to their labor through servitude to recoup the cost of the unjust war which they waged against you? So as far as I understand, the question of penal slavery as the result of just warfare Mm -hmm. was still an open question, even, you know, in the medieval period. 
and so you know, so this is something that needs to be resolved and is resolved mm-hmm. later, but it's still an open okay. question at the time. I'm, gl- I'm glad you made that point because there is a there. I think a distinction that needs to be made between penal slavery and chattel slavery, which is what has happened in the United States since this the period we're in in the 16th century and things like that. And the, the Catholic Church never. I don't chattel believe slavery never no permitted no. chattel sla- generational slavery where you are not considered a person but property and things like that. No, yeah. Okay. And that I think for for a lot of modern audiences they hear slavery and their mind immediately goes to what happened in America before the Civil War. What was happening in the Spanish colonies was different, correct? These were not generational slaves as, as far as I know. As far as I understand that's correct. Now, it's even a little more complicated with the encomienda system mm-hmm. because so one of the immediate effects of the of Montesinos preaching was, of course, this caused a big stir. The son of Christopher Columbus, who was the governor at the time, yeah. comes to the prior, demands to speak with the preacher. The prior says, we all preach that sermon. Uh, you can speak to me. And the governor, Columbus, demands that the issue be readdressed next Sunday. And say, so, okay, we'll, we'll readdress the issue. And so <laughs> they deliver a follow-up sermon, not only denouncing the slaveholders as being in mortal sin, but also saying we won't give you absolution and confession mm-hmm. unless you release your slaves. Yeah. You know, they up the ante, right? And this, of course, goes back to the emperor, or I'm sorry, the king at the time. He's getting his information through his own uh, sor- the sources, and, to the yeah. governor. And, and so he recalls the friars, and this is very destabilizing. <laughs> and, you know, oh, yeah. and, and think about it. Like, yeah, you can't absolutely. receive absolution. It's like a condemnation to hell. You know, so this is a big deal. And so the king recalls the friars, and then the friars actually to the king's credit, are given the chance to plead their cause mm-hmm. in Spain. So Montesinos and Cordoba, they, they make their case. Mm-hmm. And this is actually the first moderate reform. The laws of Burgos are passed uh, shortly after that. So he actually sees, mm-hmm. sees, he sees some of the, the friar's position and actually agrees that some reforms are necessary. Is this, just to keep the timeline straight, yep. where's De La Casas when... Montesinos and the others go back. Is, is this while he is still there and involved in the Cuban expedition exactly. and things like that? Okay, all right. So he's still in the New World, not a part of that first reform in the laws of Burgos That's being right. passed. Okay, That's right. right. So this is all happening when he, he is yet to really have his kind of big conversion right. in a sense. And so the laws of Burgos have passed in 1512, and they codify okay. the encomienda system. Now, the encomienda system is supposed to be an alternative to slavery. Mm-hmm. And it's not chattel slavery, but it is basically a forced labor kind of system. Almost like medieval serfs. You're exactly. tied to the land kind of thing. Okay. It's a, that's exactly what it, okay. the best kind of analog here. It really is a feudal kind of serfdom. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Laws of Burgos had some provisions. The Indians on the encomienda were supposed to receive a salary. They were supposed to be, after the laws were amended in 1513, after two years of service, the Indians were supposed to be free to leave. Mm-hmm. Someone it, tells me it didn't work out that way. It didn't work no. out that way. Well, no. you, but yeah, exactly. You know, there's the, there's the law and the mm-hmm. kind of intentions of reform, and then there's the reality on the ground where there's tremendous financial interest at stake. Yeah. And, you know, and a lack of any... I mean, there's some enforcement mechanisms written into the law, but I mean, how can they really be enforced transatlantic, you know, transatlantically? Yeah. I mean, it's going to be hard. So, the emperor can't tweet his, uh, his orders <laughs> like... Yeah, so on the books, it seemed like a positive step. You know, it was a positive step in some regards. But, the, you know, and the, the kind of complicating, tragic thing is that part of the justification for the encomienda was this kind of humanitarian 
evangelical even mission of trying to Christianize mm-hmm. and, and civilize these people, which, you know, of course, we're all familiar with just this, how this kind of mentality can really justify certain abuses, right? And, yeah. and it's really unjust institutions. Anyway, so it's just to draw some ex- distinctions. It's not to say this was good. It's just to say sure. slightly better than chattel slavery, yeah. maybe. I, I think all three of us can agree that uh, none of this was was a positive system, but there are degrees of evil, you might say, in, yeah. in economic systems. Yeah. So in terms of the friars being recalled, did the church recall them, or was that the king who, who recalled them? So that's a great question, and I couldn't tell you for sure, but I would suspect it was the crown. Now, part of this is that the crown had obtained from the church many privileges with respect to the governance of the church at the time. This is partly because of the Protestant Reformation. The king had a lot of leverage and was able to receive certain kind of delegated authority from Rome. So a historian of the period would have a better grasp of this than I do. But I understand that there was a kind of patronage agreement with the Pope that gave the Spaniards a kind of apostolic mission to any lands that they discovered. You know, this was actually kind of in the background of many of the discussions about the justice of the Spanish wars of conquest there revolved around to what extent could the Pope grant lands to a crown and what, what kind of grant was given. And certainly the infamous Pope Alexander VI claimed certain powers that were totally contested of in his day and have since been totally rejected. But there was a question as to what power the Pope had to grant lands to certain sovereigns. So I believe it was the crown that recalled the friars. Wasn't part of that also the result of the Reconquista, the 400, 500-year war to reconquer Spain from the Muslims, and that's why the church was giving the Spanish rulers so much authority? That certainly is in the background, and it certainly really shapes the Spanish ethos. Right. You know, like how the Spaniards conceive themselves in Christendom, culturally. They had suffered a kind of invasion, you know, and and then they had reclaimed those Mm -hmm. lands and as another just war. As another just war. And exactly. And so this was actually this is actually a big point at issue is the Reconquista was less problematic in just war terms because it was a reclaiming of Christian lands that had been unjustly taken, Mm -hmm. as the argument goes. And so there were attempts to somehow try to (laughs) draw an analogy with the the Conquista. And you know, as Francisco de Vittoria in his in his analysis of it, I mean they're just there's no parallel. Mm, uh, yeah. Certainly in the background, though. Earlier, you were talking about the reforms that are on the books, right? Um, and then there's the practical application of those. The leaders in Europe weren't stupid. They understood the financial implications of the reforms that they were approving. Because they understood those, and they understood practically what would happen if they were actually implemented, can one argue that they knew that the reforms wouldn't happen is that possible? I and it just it seems like they were receiving the benefits of these conquered areas. Mm-hmm. And they understood that those benefits would decrease if these were actually implemented. It just it seems like that's kind of like, yeah, sure, we'll approve this. Now how do you actually have it happen? Because it seems like if they were serious about it, they would implement some economic penalty that would hinder the people from earning the income that they were earning if they still conducted this this evil practice. But they didn't do that. 
Yeah. No, I think there's certainly grounds for cynicism here. I mean, I don't, I can't really speculate not knowing the characters involved all sure. that well, yeah. but I think you're right. I mean, it's certainly there was a large financial interest in the kind of mining operations that were going on. And it's interesting when you read Francisco de Vitoria, who was very important chair of theology at the University of Salamanca when Las Casas was really advocating as the defender of Indians. Francisco de Vitoria in Salamanca, Spain, was debating and teaching on these issues. And it's interesting when you read his, his famous Relexione de Indies, at the end of his question on the justice of the cause of the Spaniards and the wars in the Indies, he makes a comment, it's interesting, where he basically says, you know, what would be the practical effect if the Spaniards were to admit that their wars were unjust? And he says, he tries to kind of mitigate fears. <laughs> it's interesting. He, he, he has a, just a brief little paragraph. But he basically says, we could still be on peaceful terms and stay as kind of guests and engage in trade and be able to have a civil relationship that could eventually lead to a desire for some political integration. And, you know, revenues could still be taxed by the crown. And it's kind of interesting. You can see he has a practical understanding of some of the issues at stake, and he's trying to kind of make a claim, make a case that we can do the right thing and it won't bankrupt the empire or something. It's it's laudable, and you can see he's trying to, right, you know, make the position more palatable. Okay. It seems like a lot of the Spanish conquerors from Columbus, even though he's not in that category onward, they always cited the spreading of the gospel as one of the reasons why they wanted to conduct this conquest. The friars had that as a singular goal. That was their purpose. But the others <laughs> stated that as one of the reasons. This may be coming from a modern point, but how did they qualify their actions against their stated reason to spread the gospel? Was there a disconnect? And it sounds like the friars tried holding them accountable. It'd be like, you asked me to join you on this conquest to speak into the uh, faith of your men, and yet your actions don't actually illustrate a gospel mindset. Like, how did they say, I'm still doing God's work, or was it just a political thing to gain church favor? Mm. Yeah, it's hard to say exactly what was motivating whom. I think, though, it's probably, it's a little bit hard, I think, from our modern perspective to enter into the kind of background culture, worldview perspective that would have been fairly pervasive even among these very secular, avaricious men. I think generally it was recognized that faith in Jesus Christ was necessary for salvation and that those who hadn't heard the gospel, their souls were in danger in some way. And there was a kind of... Spanish nobility, like kind of the, the Spanish identity at the time was because of the Reconquista, part of the, the honor of the Spanish identity was being in some ways the tip of the spear in Christendom, you know, for the gospel from the Reconquista. Now that spear is double-edged, I suppose, uh, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> for sure. For sure. But that, so I think that, you know, I suspect that there was some real cognitive dissonance <laughs> In, in some ways, you're kind of surprised that the, the crown took any action with the laws of Burgos. You know, they're listening to these friars. I mean, in some ways, the, the missionaries' access to the crown is kind of surprising that they even had any leverage. I think there is an interesting kind of dissonance here. And I think 
you know, I think that there were plenty of opportunities to use that noble ideal of spreading the gospel, bringing people to the unity of Christ, that could then justify, and you know, in their minds, justify a lot of the injustices that they were mm-hmm. that they were doing. And this is when when you look at some of the debates that are going on about the just cause of the Spanish conquest. The need to evangelize these people is is one of the rhetorically powerful ones. So, you know, there's there's definitely a lot of cynical justification of a kind of avaricious enterprise, to be sure. So I think it's um it's unfortunate. You can see Eucor is more than unfortunate. It's mm. it's it's tragic. A, a, a tragic and, and really and you even see now I want to just read one brief portion, if I may, from Sublimis Deus. Mm-hmm. Because the Pope says in incredibly powerful words just what the Spaniards are doing and how abominable it really is in view of the noble ideal which they ostensibly profess. In Sublimus Deus, the second paragraph says, The enemy of the human race, i.e. the devil, who opposes all good deeds in order to bring men to destruction, beholding and envying this, invented a means never before heard of by which he might hinder the preaching of God's word of salvation to the people. He inspired his satellites, the demons and those who serve them, who, to please him, have not hesitated to publish abroad that the Indians of the West and the South, and other people of whom we have recent knowledge, should be treated as dumb brutes created for our service, pretending that they are incapable of receiving the Catholic faith. We who, though unworthy, exercise on earth the power of our Lord and seek with all our might to bring these sheep of his flock who are outside into the fold committed to our charge, consider, however, that the Indians are truly men, they are not only capable of understanding the Catholic faith, but according to our information, they desire exceedingly to receive it. So this is a brief excerpt. But, mm-hmm. but you can see that the Pope is condemning this is, as really the machinations of the devil. And now, Which I think it was. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, there was certainly grave evil. Now, Pope Paul III wasn't himself a saint. Oh, really? No, he, okay. he, he was uh, you know, part of the... Um, is he a Borgia? The Borgia, He was, yeah. okay. They'll get their own episode here eventually. Right, yeah. So his legacy himself is, is of course, mixed. But at least with this teaching, he's embracing the mandate of his office. Mm-hmm. He comes to the defense, in this instance, to decry the, the evil, mm-hmm. the real evil, of the supposed uh, mission of the Spaniards. And I think it's sobering when you read Atue. The Taino chief in Cuba says about Christians, says, I don't want to go to heaven because that's where they are. And I would imagine if the Pope read that, and maybe he did, that that would be a part of it. But just to very quickly build on what Joe's question, once the conquest began, I think everything you said was absolutely correct. But just one other point, Joe, I think it was the religious impetus for colonization was a huge fundraiser because the crown didn't subsidize all of these. I believe it was Coronado who's explored a large portion of the Southwest. His expedition was almost entirely privately funded. And yeah, it sounds great to say you'll get a financial return from this. Even better, to say you'll get a spiritual return for this. You can help us evangelize these people who live in Arizona and New Mexico and northern Mexico and Texas and things like that. So I think that was also a part of the religious component of this whole thing. Wow. Hey, John, a quick, quick historical question for you. Right before the conquest of Cuba, there was a warning given to the people of Cuba about the Spaniards. Why was that warning not heeded. It seemed like there has been more than one communication about what's happening in the general area of everywhere the Spaniards go. There are these terrible things happening. As a result of that, why couldn't he get them to combine into a single force? To, to Why didn't they heed his words? 
That's a really good question. And it goes to, I think, a historical generalization, not that Joe is making, but that a lot of people who study this period sometimes make. The Native Americans were not a monolithic culture. There are thousands of different tribes and nations and empires, I think the Aztecs and the uh, Incas, and Cuba being an island, from what I've read, and granted I am not a professional Mesoamerican historian or anything like that, but I've read a fair bit about this even before this episode, because Cuba is an island, their people are relatively peaceful. So I think, Joe, a lot of them probably could not contemplate that what Hatui was saying was even possible. They probably thought he had to be exaggerating. No group of human beings could come into a country, kill all the men, rape and enslave the women and the children, and take everything that they had, the food from their mouths, the homes, everything. Again, we're not going to go too deep into the violence and the stories of what this happened because they beggar belief, but it was either that or it was just simple short-sightedness, which human beings across the pages of history have been very short-sighted when they receive warnings. I mean, why didn't the British heed Churchill's warnings about Hitler? Why didn't um, the French revolutionaries heed the warnings of Edmund Burke? There are thousands of examples of this. I think it's just another example of the mistake of believing the best when you're being warned about a coming danger. In the podcast, John talked about uh, a lot of things happened in uh, 1542. A lot of reforms came through. Was one of the reasons why the church was trying to make those reforms is it was dealing with a lot of, I don't want to call it inner turmoil, but a lot of the effects of the Reformation were they having a genuine, I don't want to say change of heart, because to your, to your comment earlier, they were always against it. Were they trying to be more aggressive about it to win back some favor, to earn some peace? What was kind of the catalyst behind a lot of these changes? I suspect that certainly it was complicated. I think the church was certainly in a period of, of internal reform you know, around that time, building up to the Council of Trent. There was a kind of counter-reformation movement. The foundation of the Jesuits were involved in that, and there is a spirit of reform. There's a spirit of reform within the orders, the religious orders of the time. Like I mentioned, the Dominican order was undergoing a period of reform as well, and the, these our friar missionaries were a part of that reform. So it certainly is a, an intense period of introspection and in trying to purify the church to, to an extent. Now, of course, the leaders of the church at the time themselves are imperfect men and many times half-heartedly embracing all of these reforms. But there is a movement. It's, it's tending in that direction. I think that in some ways there was a bit of Spanish pride implicated here, that this is, in some sense, this actually points to the complicated legacy of Las Casas because, you know, his history of the Indies is embraced by the Protestant world as an example of just those wicked Catholics. So there's an interesting dynamic there where there's, there's kind of an incentive to try to discredit Las Casas by the Spaniards and then an attempt to, to remedy the problem, you know, to, to respond to the, the grave injustice that, that he's pointing out. So I think it's a complex set of motivations and issues, some, you know, defensive, some more noble. I think Las Casas did awaken the conscience of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to be very cynical in any age, but, you know, people do have consciences and they can be <laughs> awakened. So I think that there were, that's part of it. Yeah. And, and John, what were some shifts that were happening that went on to help influence all, all of these changes? The biggest one was certainly the rise of England, and this ties into what Father Dominic just said, because the Protestants did latch on to not just de las Casas, but anyone who is criticizing the Catholics. So were 
1542, we're, quick mental math, we're 16 years before the Spanish Armada and the great war between England and Spain. But I think Henry VIII has died at this point, but the English Reformation has started, and England's military power is not necessarily the greatest, but their spiritual power. And the image of this vibrant Protestant nation oppressing Catholics, and then they get a Catholic queen under Mary I oppressing the Protestants. Then you get Elizabeth trying with the Toleration Act. Basically, this religious back and forth together with the economic reality that Francis Drake and other English privateers are stealing billions of dollars or sending it to the bottom of the ocean from the Spanish treasure fleets. The king and emperor, Charles V, and then his son, Philip II, realize we've got to make some changes. So in order to kind of maybe get the religious cause out of the way, let's pass the new laws in 1542. That allows maybe a little bit less money coming into the treasury, but it will strengthen our colonies by getting these pesky meddlesome friars to be quiet, <laughs> finally, <laughs> and, and let us continue to take vast amounts of gold out of the new world so that we can then build up our military strength for the coming conflict with England. You also have a rising power in France. You have the Ottoman Empire. There's talk of an invasion across the Straits of Gibraltar into southern Spain, kind of renewing the war between the Catholic Church and the Muslims. So Spain is feeling itself surrounded, even though it's inarguably the most powerful empire in the world at that point. They're realizing that looking ahead, we're going to need internal stability so we can focus on these external threats and getting the Dominicans like Las Casas, giving them the reforms that they wanted was a large part of that. So since we have a guest who is well-versed in theology, moral theology, I need a little bit of perspective. Being raised Protestant, Joe's raised Protestant, and for people who are not Catholic, we look at the history of the Middle Ages, we look at the history of this period, and the whole concept of just war. I'll just give my perspective. I view 90% of wars across human history as unjust, and I think you would agree with me yeah. in that. So how did this idea that some wars are just where did that idea come from? How did it originate within specifically Catholic doctrine? And can a war be just if injustice follows the war? Is there, is there a distinction made between the cause of the war and the results that come from it? Because you look at the Crusades. Mm -hmm. They were seen as just wars, and yet the Holocaust of blood that occurred over mm -hmm. for two centuries is, it, right. putting my opinion hat on, I would say it makes it unjust. So I'd, I'd be curious to get your, your thoughts on that. Yeah. So it's a great question. I can't speak to the historical origins of the doctrine. I wish I could speak, but I should be able to. I would say that there's debate as to the pacifism of Christianity at the beginning. Certainly, it was an ongoing debate in the early church about to what extent could a soldier remain a soldier mm -hmm. if, if he became a Christian. And You mean uh, under the Roman period, Oh, under the yeah. Roman, right. And part of it was because of serving in the Roman military involved various idolatrous practices yes. and compromises of the Christian faith. So, so that was complicating the discernment of... The justice of warfare. But certainly the Lord did not tell the centurion to lay down his arms necessarily, right? So mm -hmm. this is often appealed to as a kind of maybe negative argument in favor of that there could be just war and a Christian could be a soldier. Now, eventually the doctrine is clarified with a number of kind of requirements to discern whether a war might be just. So one of the things that you're pointing to, John, by your question regards the consequences of war and whether that might render a war unjust mm -hmm. to initiate. And certainly that actually is one of the traditional factors to consider. The consideration regards the proportionality of the war. To enter into a just war, according to the traditional doctrine, there must be a just cause, so meaning there's 
you're, it's a defensive war. There's some cause of injustice that is grave enough to merit a kind of defensive, you know, defensive act of aggression to mm-hmm. be a little oxymoronic there. But, and so there must be a just cause. And then also the, there must be reasonable chance of success. And the harms reasonably expected to arise from warfare must not outweigh the harm that you're suffering presently. You know? okay. So, so there's a, an issue of proportionality. So it kind of gets to like, are the consequences would they be so so awful that you yeah. shouldn't engage in war in the, in the first place? That's interesting because that's so subjective. It is. Well, it, you can understand theoretically. It makes some sense as far as the moral yeah. analysis. But you're right. How can you predict? And well, and is it possible to kind of, again, going back to cognitive dissonance, again, I, I point to the Crusades not as a critique of the Catholic Church or anything like that, but prior to the Spanish conquest, I think it's the best example of a just war. So forgive me for going back to the no, Crusades again. You look at what Urban II said in his proclamation of the First Crusade. It's all about reclaiming the Holy Land. It's about, you know, defense of the faith and things like that. But surely he knew, because of the nature of medieval warfare, where as soon as a city is taken, it is sacked, and that that was going to happen in the cities and towns in the Levant heading to Jerusalem, and that the people of Jerusalem were going to suffer. So I don't know if you can speak to this, but is there some element within doctrine or some, some edict or something that says you have to approach the question of the expected harms or, or consequences, destruction coming out of a war? You have to approach that honestly. You have to look at precedent, look at history and say, okay, maybe this is not a just war because knights are raping and murdering the last four centuries. They're going to do that here. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not aware of, I mean, I think that that would be certainly a requirement. You'd have to be honest yeah. and, and, and have a But clear, it's not a command mind. to be honest or something like that within... I think it'd just be implied. Okay. And so far as yeah. this, these are moral principles that must be applied, they must be applied honestly and truly. Sure. Now, I think you raise a good point, and I, and I think that there was ongoing debate as to what exactly would count as proportional response. Do the spoils of war, so-called, do they fall within the foreseeable harms? You know, is okay. that is that, part, is that part of the calculation? That's true. Or not? Is it a harm? Is it a harm yeah. if, it's a, if it's a just punishment, you know, inflicted on, <laughs> on an un, unjust aggressor, right? I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. that's the kind of, it's an unseemly business, right? It this is. is. You know, I think in some sense, the doctrine of just, the just word doctrine has been refined through the, the benefit of hindsight and a more refined conscience. I oh, think, yeah. that to be much more rigorous in its application. You know, to bring it to to the discussion of the of the, con- the wars mm-hmm. of conquest, you can look at some of the real question there that was being debated was, it, was there a just title to war? Was mm-hmm. there a, some injustice that would merit uh, an act of war? And the most famous treatise, if you want to get an insight into this, the, the actual discussion that's going on, there's no better place to look than Francisco de Vitoria, the Dominican theologian at Salamanca. His famous relection, it's a, basically a public lecture um, where he considers this burning contemporary question. And so you can mm-hmm. imagine, like, this is, this is kind of crazy to think about. Like, this war, these wars are going on, and now he's giving a public lecture on this topic. Questioning them. Questioning yeah. them, right? And he goes through seven illegitimate titles to war that are being proposed, right? So, like, the emperor is the master of the whole world, so, the hmm. emperor, so you know, he can just decide who yeah. gets what. That the just possession of, you know, the Indies is on behalf of the pope, so this kind of hierocratic papal kind of theocracy idea that was some people espoused at the time that the pope could grant the lands to the spanish crown he rejects that by a right of discovery that 
the lands were discovered and therefore they came into possession to mm-hmm. the Spaniards. He rejects that saying like they were possessed, <laughs> you know, they, they, they were possessed by the indigenous peoples yeah. who had their own political sovereignty. Yep. They refused to accept the faith of Christ, another Ill- illegitimate title that was bandied about, and he rejects that. It's like, that's no just justification hmm. for war. The sins of the infidels. So he speaks of like their sins. Oh, so he rejects that. He rejects that. Okay. He says, well, he rejects this. So sins in this context, he's thinking of unnatural vices. Right, or, like cannibalism, human exactly, sacrifice, things like that. Exactly. Right. He says, those are not just cause for war. Okay. The... One title that was being proposed was that it was the voluntary choice of the Indians. Like they invited the Spaniards to rule over them, and he's yeah. he, and he says like even if some people some of them did that, they didn't know what they were doing. Like that was not you know, yeah. and that was not any just title anyway. So he rules that out. And then another was by some special gift of God, you know, like a prophecy or something. And he's like, he rules that out too. He's like, you got to test those prophecies. Mm. He says, you got to, <laughs> every revelation needs to be tested. Okay. And then he's, he, then I prophesy he, that Joe's house is going to be mine now. Yeah. <laughs> and, I'm not sure how to take that, John. <laughs> Crusade so, at Joe's house. <laughs> then he goes through a couple of possible just titles. Okay. And it's interesting how he phrased, he's very, very careful, sophisticated in, how yeah. he, and how he phrases this, right? So he says one possible just title might be to defend the right to natural partnership and communication. Basically, his, his argument is that it belongs to the natural law in the, the use gentium, the law of nations, that travelers uh, should be met with hospitality and should be able to dwell for a time among another people. And so... Hmm. If travelers are met with violence, then they have a right to defend themselves. And so now that you can- To an extent, true, but- Right, right. And so yeah. exactly. So he actually ends up like ruling this out. You know, he, okay. you know, he, he proposes like a possible just title. Like there is a certain injustice that's done if yeah. like someone is visiting and you, you know, whatever. But he's like, but that's not what the Spaniards did. their king or yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. It's not, not what the Spaniards did, right? They didn't- I'm thinking Cortez and the Aztecs saying, oh, we're just here visiting. Exactly. So, you know, he rules that out. Another possible just title would be to defend the right of missionaries to preach the gospel. So he thinks that missionaries have a, a right in natural law and also divine right mm. to be able to be free to preach the gospel peacefully in a foreign land. And so if that right is, is impeded, then there can be a right to, to defense of the missionaries. Now, he again, he rules that out as a title for war, saying, you know, defense necessary to defend the lives of the missionaries, but not to wage a, yeah. a war. And then he considers to defend and protect converts, and he has a few others that he... But the one that's probably most salient and that continues to be an issue of contemporary debate is he says to defend the innocent against tyranny. So Mm. he has this idea of if innocent men are being sacrificed and there's grave injustice being perpetrated against the innocent, then perhaps there might be some ground for a kind of war of intervention. And so that's, in my reading of it, that's the title that he's most kind of ambivalent about and kind of open to considering. Mm-hmm. But of course, when he actually then speaks on the actual practice of the Spaniards, he's like, this is not what they, this is not, yeah. this is not what they were doing. This was not what they did. Another thing like on paper works and then you confronted with reality, kind of like with the decrees against the encomienda. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, okay. it's, it's, but it, his... His legacy, I encourage for anyone who's interested in the just war tradition, it's it's fascinating to read his consideration of the different titles to war hmm. and um, how he considers them, rules them out. There's a lot of contemporary, actually, implications, mm-hmm. I think. Does he address the whole issue of injustice arising as a result of the war, thus making a war unjust? He Kind he, of retroactively? 
That I'm not aware of him addressing. He certainly addresses when he's considering the freedom of missionaries to preach and mm-hmm. that kind of that right to f- have that kind of freedom. He does say, you know, that the Spanish presence has put up grave obstacles to the free acceptance of the faith. The grave injustice, which has both temporal and, in his mind, eternal ramifications, that in the in the light of the drama of salvation, the Spaniards are playing with fire mm. in so many ways. Yeah, it's an interesting exercise in to examine human behavior and what the process is for justifying war, like what goes into it. I'm rereading right now um, On War by Klauschwitz, and he specifically talks about the the motivations for war and in his experience, um, how to sort through those. And his is pretty black and white. He's just, just like, wage total war. Don't stop until the act of war is done, because the longer you prolong it, the more atrocities will happen. So, and he defines clearly in his view what the end of the war should be and all that. So it's, it's interesting to read through and, and hear your comments on uh, the background of like what people were going through mentally and in and, and prayer and trying to understand, okay, how do we say this is good or bad? Final question for all of us here, hearing the podcast and when we think about Alacostas' life, it can seem kind of discouraging. Because it seems like everything that he spent his life trying to accomplish didn't actually happen until after he passed. Even though there were some wins, uh, those reforms were not actually implemented fully, you know, all, all of that. What are some takeaways that each of you have about his life? What is a modern day view of him and, and how do we apply it? Las Casas, to me, is a model of fearlessly preaching the truth, of humbly admitting your mistakes, and repenting of your sins. Uh, You know, he himself, who had been a slaveholder and who repented of that, he really is a model of courage in so many ways and hope. Because I think you're right. There's reason, good reason perhaps, that he could have lost hope in the feasibility, the possibility of the reforms that he was advocating. But he maintained hope. And his hope, I think, you know, derived from his faith in the Lord who is just and who will vindicate the oppressed, who who lifts up the lowly. And, you know, I think that his faith in the Lord was the rock of of the hope that motivated all of his attempts to, to usher in reform and to advocate for the oppressed, even when that advocacy met with great resistance. So I look to him as, as a model uh, for me as a preacher, for me as a Christian man to to be faithful and to to have hope to to do the right thing to speak the truth and to defend those who face grave injustice agreed i uh thinking about as i was writing about las casas i almost turned to this is going to sound nerdy but i don't care i almost turned to tolkien because one of the main themes in his works is what he refers to as the long defeat and the importance of continuing to fight, even if you know that you're going to lose. I mean, in his legendarium, the elves, they know they're going to lose, and, and yet they continue to fight. And I would imagine that for a large part of Las Casas' life, he believed this isn't going to work. There's so many obstacles, political obstacles, theological obstacles, day-to-day just people trying to kill him. I mean, he, he had death threats, and yet he never... As you said, he pressed on in faith. He, he never gave up. And ultimately, he did triumph. Slavery was abolished in 
Spain, native slavery. Now it was replaced with African slavery, but that too was abolished. And today you have free countries in every Spanish-speaking part, as far as I know. I don't think there are any countries that still permit slavery, certainly not chattel slavery, in every part of the New World. Happened here in America. I would imagine the same, the abolitionists who are watching 300 years of African slavery here in the United States, same thing. They thought there's no way this is going to happen. It reminds me that you never know how history is going to turn. And what Tolkien called a catastrophe, that sudden twist from bad to good, it can happen at any moment. It can happen in the unlikeliest of circumstances. Your job, our job, the men sitting at this table, the people listening to us, is to do what we know is right. Spiritually, socially, intellectually, physically, do what you know is right, and then kind of let the chips fall where they may. Maybe it is a long defeat. Maybe there will be some kind of change. As Christians, we know we know who wins in the end. But in our, in our daily lives, every step that we take to make this world a better place, I think, is a positive one, can be a positive one, and we need to make them even if we won't necessarily see it through to the end. Well, Dominic, we really appreciate you uh, coming in and bringing your perspective. This has been great. It's a, a long episode, but absolutely worth it. So thank you very much for taking time out of your uh, Christmas break to join us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of Bartolome de las Casas. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. And again, if you would like to support our podcast, you can go to 15minutehistorypodcast.org and click the support button. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.